despite what we were led to believe from the movie The Greatest Showman, P.T. Barnum was actually kind of a dick. Apparently back in 1850, he got a hold of a bunch of blank telegraph dispatches and sent fake messages to his entire cast and crew. Some of the fake messages were supposed to be from other competing shows, offering Barnum's people a lot more money if they left Barnum to go work for these competitors. He sent one of his guys a message saying that his wife had given birth to their twin boys, which he was expecting, and he sent another guy a message saying that his home in Connecticut had burned to the ground. And somehow, we don't know exactly how, Barnum was able to arrange for all of these messages to be delivered to everyone basically simultaneously. So everyone was wrapped up in their own very good or very bad news at the exact same time, which made it take even longer for people to figure out that it was all just one big prank. And I guess some people who received those fake job offers actually went to P.T. Barnum and quit. They like gave their two weeks notice or whatever. And so this is part of the origin story of wire fraud. Now to be clear, what P.T. Barnum did wasn't actually wire fraud. It was using telegraph paraphernalia and it was lying and it was clearly a dick move, but it wasn't wire fraud. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where our criminals are interstate wire fraud perpetrators, not intrepid piano wire strangulators. I am I am pretty sure strangulator is not a word. And I'm pretty sure that you're right. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm pedantic Caleb Newquist. <laughs> the our our, uh, our grammar Nazi uh, <laughs> in residence. Uh, Caleb, before we Yo. get in, into uh, wire fraud and today's topic, I just want to read a listener review real quick as we've been doing lately. Michelle W says, love the podcast. Who says CPE can't be fun? I never thought I'd get CPE credit where sister wives and escaping polygamy would be mentioned along with biodiesel fuel. Well done and entertaining. Thanks, Michelle W. So if you like Oh My Fraud, please take a minute to rate the show, write us a review on the platform where you listen, Apple, Spotify, Earmark, wherever. Uh, Yeah, do us a solid. But anyways, Caleb, changing yeah. subjects. Uh, yes. I'm I'm interested because uh, you know since scams are, it, it seems like it's really kind of become part of our everyday life from scam phone calls to spam emails. I'm wanting to know: Have you how close have you come to being the victim of an email scam, or or have you ever actually been? a victim of of one of these types of scam, like clicked on a bad link or inadvertently downloaded some ransomware or sent some money to a Nigerian prince, anything like that? How how close have you come? Uh, I'm sorry to say not very close at all. Oh, you're Uh, (laughs) happy to say? Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose. Right. I suppose so. Um, Yeah, email scams. I guess I remember getting my first email address. And so I, you know, I was a youth, of course, 
when uh-huh. email was the hottest technology out there. Right. And so, you know, I was one of those young people who was very tech savvy. And so I don't know if email scams were really going to happen to me. Gotcha. Plus, they were always very obvious. You know, there was always typos or like bad yeah. syntax and stuff. And and I don't know. They were just kind of bizarre. And, and I just I don't know. It, clearly fraudulent uh-huh. and you know now that i've said all that i'm excited to fall for one in like the next week or so right um but right. you know like the the things that come to mind like more recently do you remember the irs scams that were running rampant for a few years there where people were just getting phone calls yes. like mostly from guys from from men with heavy like indian accents and they and and they were they were threatening uh, people uh, with like you you know you know with arrest and imprisonment because they owed these taxes right to the IRS get, and, and give leave, us your and, credit card number right now yeah, yeah yeah and and there was all and it was going on for years and I got many of those calls uh-huh. and uh, you know I was you know I was still at going concern at the time and so I was covering those stories. And gotcha. I, 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 I did not fall for any of those either. Good. But in any case, you know, I don't know the, 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 the scams of the internet, the, the text messages are a little better, yeah. but for the most part, there's always something there. There's, they're always struck me as highly suspicious, right? You know, right. it isn't, it isn't like, I don't know. I, I can't be, we're all capable of being conned, right? Sure. Um, but I, I don't know. I think I need a, I need, I think I need a human touch if I'm going to be conned. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Right. Right. You need, you need somebody in the flesh who's, who's stealing your money. Not yeah. just, not just a, uh, a, a poorly written uh, electronic message of some kind. Yeah. And, and yeah. hopefully they're, you know, they're, uh, they're good looking at least, you know, that would make it a little bit, I'd, that makes me an easier mark probably. Gotcha. Anyway. Gotcha. What about you, Greg? Well, it's funny you talk about text messages because I actually had a very close call. I think it was just last month or maybe oh. even just like two or three weeks ago. Um, I, I received a text message. It, it looked legit. It didn't have nothing that you said was in the text message that, you know, was no bad grammar, no weird word choices, anything like that. What, and what the text message said is it said that I had a package that I, some package I had ordered that they, that couldn't be delivered. And it was being held in a warehouse somewhere because it had an incomplete, in, incomplete address is what they said. And huh. the text message included a link that you're supposed to click to be able to, you know, provide your full address so that they could deliver the package. And I think, and I think you'll back me up on this. Nowadays, it feels like you probably have a 50-50 chance of any particular day that there is a package that's on its way to me from somewhere. Yes. We, there's enough on, I do enough Amazon, et cetera, ordering that I feel like, you know, I've got shipments coming pretty much uh, just regularly. And and at that point, I, I was waiting for a couple of things from Amazon, but I think it was like that Amazon marketplace where it wasn't Amazon, Amazon, but it was a seller that was selling through uh, Amazon, that yep. kind of thing. So I was like going, oh, I bet you it's, I bet you it's that package and that, you know, and that they, that they screwed up the email address. I, and I, I looking back, I'm a hundred percent certain that I absolutely would have clicked on the link to give them my address. The only thing that stopped me was that the link in the text message wasn't like hot, you know, it wasn't, 
It wasn't like oh. bl- underlined and in blue right. uh, text. Instead, instead, and they had direction. They said they said you needed to copy and paste that link into your browser. And and, and even with nope. that, because that yeah, because I think we, what you're saying is you would have been like, that's it. This has got to be fake. Nope. Me, my first thought wasn't, oh, this is a scam. My first thought was, well, they made this inconvenient yeah. for, for me. Didn't <laughs> These guys they? suck at this. <laughs> right, their customer service could go up notch but because (laughs) but because i wasn't in a place where i could copy and paste the link into a browser that bought me enough time to just like think through what was happening and and so in those you know in that little bit of time that it bought me i i re- I, I thought oh i've ordered a, tons of stuff from amazon and a- amazon clearly has my correct address because of everything that got delivered easily without being held in a warehouse for an incomplete address and i know third-party sellers print shipping labels they don't just like ca- you know look at the screen and write down my address onto the right. front of a box right. so so there's no user error involved and that's finally when i was like oh this this text is is bullshit, bullshit and the yeah. and the text was probably some sort of dangerous link and i and i seriously had like a like a few kind of you know just do- dodge that one because yeah. i realized just how close i'd come to getting had yeah these kind of digital fraud they they need like some good product managers they need some people to be like <laughs> okay right. guys look this right. is what people expect you <laughs> yeah, know exactly. and so if you want to well, if you really want it to work yeah uh, yeah you're gonna and have to- and Try like I said, if they harder. did that one tweak where the link I was hot, I, I think I would have I, I would have done it. Um, so close. So close. And and the reason that we're talking about all this kind of stuff is because it all falls under the umbrella of wire fraud. We've been interested in learning more about wire fraud since our second episode, Friends with Mutual Benefits. Uh, that's the title, episode two, uh, where the guy behind a weird insurance settlement called Viatical, they're called Viatical Settlements, he ran a Ponzi scheme, but he was charged not with theft, not with securities fraud, but with wire fraud. Yeah, and we and we couldn't quite figure it out. And I and I think if I'm if my memory's right, after we taped that episode, we were both kind of like, why wire fraud? And at that point, we were like, we need to know what wire fraud is. And so now, forty something episodes later, we're finally getting around to doing our homework of unpacking the history of wire fraud. Now. We can't tell the history of wire fraud without getting into the history of mail fraud because the two are inextricably linked. The United States Postal Service was established not in 1776, but in 1775 by the Second Continental Congress. So technically, the U.S. Postal Service is older than the United States, which... Did you know that, Greg? I, I didn't I, know that. I did not know that. I didn't think that was possible. But, I didn't think it would be possible. How could right. that be possible? But but it kind it kind of makes sense. I guess it yeah. kind of makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And I think they're still using a lot of the same methods. To be honest. <laughs> right. Yeah. I anyway, agree. Over the next hundred years or so, mail fraud was born and grew and began to impact a whole lot of people. Typical mail fraud schemes in those days were promises of land, lotteries, and gifts. Kind of along the same lines as the whole, you know, Nigerian prince scam. Yeah. In order to get the land or the lottery winnings or the gift, you had to pay a fee or a tax of some kind. Then the scammer pocketed the fee or the tax and you never got your land or lottery winnings or gift. 
which is crazy to me because that's that is exactly like you said that's the formula for the nigerian prince scam yeah. so it's just now they're sending emails instead of sending you know a, a 1980s uh, handwritten letter that right. ca- that took you know 4 weeks to get to you through yeah, the delivered through the by pony paul, express paul revere yeah. <laughs> someone exactly. far less heroic than exactly. paul exactly yeah right. yep anyway finally congress passed the federal mail fraud statute in 1872 The statute stated that, quote, any person within or outside the United States who had intentions to use the mails, the mails, the mails. Yeah, sure. All of not just any of the mails, all the mails Uh, (laughs) intentions to use the mails to defraud another shall be charged with a misdemeanor and fined or imprisoned. End of quote. This for the first time gave postal inspectors the ability to federally federally prosecute fraudsters right which which is interesting because i i think and and that the whole i think the emphasis there is that these crimes could be prosecuted at a federal level Mm, at that point which makes sense because the post office is a federal organization so if you're interstate interstate activity yeah exactly so So, so it's not that this stuff was necessarily legal, but it was just a state. It was kind of the patchwork state by state. You know, what could you do? And, and I think, again, I think part of the problem too is since the postal service, like we said, is an interstate uh, business. If you had a fraudster in one state and you had the victim in another state, then whose jurisdiction and what can happen there, and just all of the, the difficulties of having, you know, the, the different states that were. St- in statehood at that point in 1872 and uh, and how to how to reconcile all their various laws and jurisdictions must have been a yeah a hassle. to hell so, with all of that just to hell with all feds, that yeah let the feds do it exactly we got yeah. we got a solution now and it only and like you said it only took a hundred years to get it right right so. now the telegraph was invented in 1837 35 years before the mail fraud statute was passed into law So that's why Section 301 of the Mail Fraud Statute specifically prohibited use of telegraph communications to promote fraudulent transactions. The statute uses the term, quote, the wires instead of, quote, telegraph. I'm doing air quotes. You can hear them. I know you can. I could hear them so clearly. (laughs) Which explains the origin of the term wire fraud. It also allowed the statute to be more broadly applied to include telephone fraud, even though the telephone wasn't invented until 1876. Now, right. I have to say, there are people alive today who think that the Constitution is the same document today that it was in 1776 or 1787, whenever the hell it was, you know, came into existence. And yet they had the foresight in the 19th century to write a law that would allow for frauds to cover frauds using devices that had not been invented. So that to me is quite remarkable. And I know it's kind of a sidebar, but I, that just came to mind right now. Right. So anyway, and so thanks for indulging me is what I'm saying. Exactly. And it's, and it's good that you said that, but also as we'll see the, uh, the, the, the statute, the mail fraud statute, even though it included the wires And because telephones obviously also use wires, that's why they were able to be this, the same law was able to be applied to them. But once you get to things like cell phones and email and internet, then all of a sudden you're going, how much is wires and how much isn't? And, 
you know, when does it get beamed up to satellites and things like that? So they did have to make some changes and they do have to continually make changes to these statutes to make them effective for all forms of communication to make sure it's broad enough to, to get all the bad guys. Yep. Snag, snagging everybody. Exactly. So according to the statute, there are three necessary elements required for something to be considered mail fraud or wire fraud. Number one, the intent to defraud. Right. Uh, good one. Yep. Well, good which, one. which is, which is uh, kind of ties back into the PT Barnum story. That's why that wasn't fraud because he didn't, that he, he wasn't, he lied, but he wasn't trying to steal anybody's money. Right. So he had no intent to defraud. Right. Two, false representations that were material to the scheme to defraud. Mm-hmm. And three, transmission of the material misrepresentation by mail or wire. Hey folks, Caleb Newquist here, co-host of Oh My Fraud. 2023 is coming to a close fast. And if you're an advertiser or marketer who wants to capitalize on the thousands of accounts who will be listening to this podcast to get their continuing professional education credits, why not advertise on Oh My Fraud? Use our self-service ad platform to browse our remaining inventory and book the slots that fit your marketing budget. From there, it will only be a matter of time before you hear us telling our listeners your company's story. Head over to ohmyfraud.com slash sponsor to get your campaign started. That's ohmyfraud.com slash sponsor. So we found a great story about a guy with a great name. His name was Soapy Smith. He went by Soapy Smith. His birth name was Jefferson Randolph Smith II, which... Oh, uh, I, yeah, go by Soapy, please. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yep. just, just like we had uh, President Soapy Clinton. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's so, right. <laughs> so back, back in the late... Uh, it was So it was in the late... 1890s, Soapy Smith opened a telegraph office in Skagway, Alaska. Now, if you're not oh. familiar with the geography of Alaska, I am not. I am not either. Skag oh. Skagway was this town that gold prospectors would regularly pass through on their way to the Klondike Gold Rush. And so Soapy would charge these prospectors five bucks to send a telegram over his telegraph service. But, and here's the rub, Soapy didn't have a telegraph. Hey. What, what he had was he had a, he had a guy sitting at a desk. I'm envisioning him with, a, with some sort of visor and his head down. And yep. he was clicking away at something that kind of looked like a telegraph, but was not in fact a telegraph. But it was hooked up to, uh, as the story goes, about 50 feet of wire. But again, more rub. That wire wasn't hooked up to anything. It just like just like trailed out into the next room or something Fantastic. like that. Yep. Fantastic. And so, but, but listen, so what Soapy found was that uh, people sending telegrams always were hoping that they would get a telegram in reply. And so Soapy started not just sending fake telegrams, but he started telling them to come. It's like, come back in an hour or so, and I'll tell you if you got a reply. And they'd come back, and sure enough, there was some very sweet, pleasant reply waiting for them. But 
Soapy would, would tell his victim that the replies came collect. And so they'd have to pay him either 10 or 15 bucks just to get these fake replies to fake messages that never really went out. And Soapy went even further where he would end every fake reply with a please send money kind of sentiment. So then if these guys did send money, Soapy would just pocket that too. So well almost done. almost everybody who came through Soapy's telegraph office was was probably swindled out of at least 15 bucks, likely more. And I, I did the math to adjust that for inflation. And 15 bucks back in the late 1890s would be the same as about 550 bucks today. Mm. So Soapy was making some good money. Interesting side note, uh, Soapy died when uh, a disgruntled uh, customer shot him down. Yeah, yeah, that seems about right. <laughs> that seemed, yeah, that, it's yeah. no surprise that that was coming. It's, it's also one of those things where, you know, in the gold rush days, they're like, the, you know, the people looking for gold didn't get rich. The pick and axe guys are the ones that got yep. rich, but yep. also the guys with the phony telegraphs probably also got <laughs> right. rich. It right. Seems. Which also just sounds so funny where it's like, Hey, your job is to just here's it's like, here's a stapler and your job is to just click yeah. this stapler and don't look up, but, yep. but, but where, wear wear a bow tie and wear a visor and click a stapler. And that, that's your, and it's like, that's and, what I'm doing. And, it's like, and, just and shut look up. Like you're, you're, you're concentrating. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of concentration. Exactly. So uh, just to be clear though, this story doesn't actually qualify as wire fraud. I think what Come I on. think, I think this isn't technically wire fraud because although a, Soapy had criminal intent to defraud, and B, Soapy did make false representations. He never actually used a telegraph to communicate those material misrepresentations. He told his material misrepresentations to his victims' faces. The current wire fraud statute is basically the same as the mail fraud statute, except it applies to schemes where the false or fraudulent pretenses are, quote, transmitted by means of wire, radio, or television communication in interstate or foreign commerce. If convicted, the perpetrator can be fined and imprisoned up to 20 years, but it's 30 years if you're wire frauding during a presidentially declared disaster or emergency, like a pandemic. Or a hurricane? Meh. Okay. Yeah. All right. The current statute is broad enough to cover the internet and email. It is kind of fun to think about the irony of how much wire fraud one could commit using a wireless device. I mean, you mentioned this earlier, Greg, but like technically, you know, if you're going to get literal about the interpretation, then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I'm they, sure, I mean, there's wires underground. I'm sure, I'm sure we're, you know, we're, we're using wires right now. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. There's yeah. probably no getting around it. There's no, well, and yeah, exactly. And again, I think at this point, wire fraud is more, you know, it's a, it's a cute, uh, what vernacular that includes a lot of things that include wire, like you said, right. wire, wireless sure technology. Yeah, I'm sure there's a Supreme Court case that kind of like settled this long, long ago. <laughs> right. That said, somebody's like, uh, excuse me, there were no wires. And the judge is like, it's wire fraud. Right. And it's right. Like, well, that was but, the end of it. 
But when they codified, so they when they codified a, a lot of the the different federal regulations, that's when they up. That's also my understanding when they updated the wire fraud statute, so that it does. And you you read an actual quote from it, so it is. Yep. yep. It, it does include radio or television communication, right. which is which is beamed to you. It's not over the wires, so right. it's it's explicit in there. And like I said, I think that they continue to update the statute. So that so it's like, hey, listen, Bluetooth, it's still in there. You know, that, <laughs> that right. kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. The statute of limitations for wire fraud is five years. However, it is extended to 10 years if the fraud affects a financial institution. Banks get all the breaks, man, don't they? <laughs> they do. Well, and again, as we'll see in a second, there's a, there's a lot of fraud that includes... Uh, banks. Banks, yeah. Financial yeah. institutions what did, broadly. What did, Chris, what did Chris Marquet say? That's where the money is. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's it. Since mail fraud and wire fraud statutes are exceptionally broad and have a long statute of limitations, they make prosecutors' jobs easier. That's why we see so many wire fraud convictions. Some critics, and even some judges, have argued that mail and wire fraud statutes are actually too broad. Yeah. Did, did you read any of the, the arguments for or against that? I did not get a chance, but now that the, you mention it, I'm kind of interested. I, they're they're not. I, I don't find them compelling, compelling. at all. Because yeah, mm -hmm. they were they were kind of like saying, well, it makes it makes a like contract law more difficult because, and I'm like, why? Because you're afraid that you're reading? gonna uh, you're afraid that your lies are gonna be. <laughs> I don't know the lies that you put in a contract and then email are somehow gonna be. Uh, it, it's still a lie. Why? Yeah. Why are we worried about right. this? Yeah, so. misrepresentation. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of feel like I kind of feel. You know, again, I'm a goody two shoes when it comes to this, but I kind of want. I want aggressive wire, <laughs> wire fraud laws. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, like, I'm. I want them to be aggressive. I'm good with it. And again, yeah. it, you know, and th this. Uh, yeah, they, they call these types of laws, they call them federal auxiliary laws. Yep. Because it takes laws that are enacted in most, if not all states, but then elevates them to the federal level so that the mm. crimes can be prosecuted on a federal level. Right. And so like any time, even if there's a even if there's a Ponzi scheme in your little country club that doesn't go outside of the your your home state. Yeah. If it's a big enough crime, the FBI is coming in to take your ass down exactly. because of of the wire fraud statutes. Yep, and because of federal auxiliary laws. That's the uh, that's the vocabulary word for today. All right, Greg, Greg, pulling out the pulling out the technical lingo, I, man. I did nice I did work. some I did some research for this one. So he does kay. research for all of them, folks. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So, Caleb, of all of the fraud cases that we've covered on this podcast, here are, this isn't an exhaustive list, but here's a bunch of the ones that we've covered that resulted either in mail fraud or wire fraud convictions. And just to be clear to the listeners, we are going to be engaging in some heavy speculation uh, because again, it would have taken just a, a ridiculous amount of research and, and it might even be impossible to find exactly how wire fraud charges were like ham fistedly crammed into these different cases because we're not, we weren't in the court and the, you know, short of a transcript of an entire hearing, 
uh, we might not be able to figure that out. We're we're not prosecuting attorneys, Greg. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not DAs. We're right. not assistant U.S. attorneys. We're none of those things. We're none of those things. And we weren't part of the teams that were prosecuting these cases because, as you'll see as we go through this, I'd say uh, the majority of them were seeing the the uh, the fraudster who's pleading guilty to wire fraud cases. So in that case, it didn't even get. You know, the, I'm sure it was spelled out there, but it wasn't. They were just like, how do you plead with wire fraud? And they go guilty and you go, OK, then we're good. Then we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of how we got there. So. Right. Um, so, yeah. But but uh, it's also the speculation's going to be pretty fun, I think, Caleb, because a lot of these cases, it's not real clear how you get from the from the crime to a, to wire fraud but to we're going to charge gonna, of wire fraud but we're going to we're up to the we're up to the task we're going to try right we're going to give it our best shot some of these are easy so okay. um starting with our very very first episode we ever did uh Gilbert Michaels he was the printer toner pirate king and he was convicted of mail fraud but strangely not wire fraud the mail fraud charge came because he would send these phony invoices to companies for toner that was yep. either way overpriced for what they asked for. It was just uh, false all around. It was interesting that it wasn't wire fraud because if you remember, uh, there was a bo they did kind of a boiler room sort yep. of situation. Yep. So they had people who would call and would just aggressively uh harangue these uh you know secretaries in these uh sc public schools for orders for for uh for toner and you know you need the ink lady <laughs> come on exactly and and so here's my here's my guess is that they weren't able to get well not that they weren't able to get wire fraud charges to stick but that wire fraud was probably a harder a case to make because with the telephone it's highly unlikely when this was happening that people were actually recording the phone conversations mm. where instead someone could just go to court and say uh, you know here's here's evidence a it's a fake invoice and they go yep that's right. what that is mail fraud done right. <laughs> slam dunk next yep. case next case oh next case next case the honorable reverend jim baker honorable sure <laughs> uh he was from that's that was uh our episode 11 our uh our pod uh yeah the episode on religion and fraud yep uh jim baker was indicted on eight counts of mail fraud and 15 counts of wire fraud the current wire fraud statute specifically covers television uh as you may or may not remember jim baker was a uh famous televangelist yep. uh is he's still alive is yeah that's um, true yeah and he and still does so, it He's still on TV. Yep. <sighs> anyway, uh, he, um, uh, as as I recall, Greg, that was that was an investment scam. Yes, because they were selling they were um, they were selling uh, timeshares essentially, right? They, basically, it was kind of a, a weird bastardization of timeshares because what they did, if you gave a donation towards this heritage village oh, you got or something the vacation. like that. Then, yes. then, yeah, if you, give, if you give a large enough donation, they'd give you a certain number of nights to stay per year. Yep. Uh, and, and what was awesome was they, they gave, they, so many people gave these 
thousand dollar donations that they didn't have enough room to house right. all of them in, in a year. Right. So like they they would have needed a hotel uh, the size of Texas or something like that. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> like to make good on all the donations. Exactly. And yeah. again, he you know, he he asked for those donations on the TV. And if you've yep. ever been if you know, anyone who's ever donated to really any kind of I guess really any charity at all, you end up getting just so much junk mail from them in the United States Postal Service. And I know that's the case for him. And so I'm sure that he sent out lots and lots of letters to people asking for those same donations for the same uh, benefit to them. I guess the last thing that comes to mind for me in this case is if wire fraud can be committed through the television, I mean, you would have to think that how can televangelists even be on TV? Yeah. Well, I think it's because it's hard to quantify blessings. Ah. You send in you send in <laughs> money and and God will send you blessings if it's according to his will. So there's a I lot see. of you just there's a lot of fine print that I think they put in there to to kind of keep would... them out of out of the uh you know, out of the FBI's crosshairs. Oh man, that must be I, I, the lawyers that have to write the that fine print. <laughs> yeah, it must be. It must. Right. They must get a kick out of that. It must. Yeah, that's that's a job I don't want. Uh, the next uh, the next case that we're gonna talk about with wire fraud was Michael Mann. He was the guy behind the my payroll HR fraud in episode fifteen. And he pleaded guilty to one conspiracy to commit wire fraud amongst a myriad of other uh, things that he pleaded guilty to. Um, So if if you don't remember, uh, what he did is he created fake invoices in order to create fake accounts receivable balances for his businesses. And then he would go to banks and he would get the banks to loan him real money using the fake a- accounts receivable as collateral. Yep. And and this is one of those things where you go, okay, so, so far I see what he did, but I don't see the wire fraud. It's not like in your face, not like a televangelist uh, using a television. Um, what if so, he faxed over? What if he faxed over the applications for the loans? That's ex- that's exactly what I was thinking too. Yeah, is that yeah? He, like maybe he emailed uh, or emailed so, him. Yeah, yeah this some, wasn't that that this wasn't that long ago. No, so he could have emailed him exactly. So he could or or you know or like I don't know if they had like uh, most accounting firms nowadays will have like a secure portal and a my portal. I know yep. my bank I, I work closely with a bank for my day job they also have a secure portal where we can electronically deliver documents back and forth. So that would all be since the internet, like we said, internet and email are concluded under the broad uh, and the broad, but also very specific statute of wire fraud. So yeah, anything you deliver electronically is going to, if, if it's a lie, that's a, that's wire fraud. You're going down. Yep. All right. Charles Percher from episode 19 about, uh, employee leasing companies, AKA PEOs. Yep. Um, he pleaded guilty to mail fraud instead of remitting 133 million of social security and Medicare payments to the IRS on behalf of his customers. He just kept the money. 
(laughs) I just love those are my favorite frauds to be honest. It's just like (laughs) yoink. It's a yoink fraud. Yeah. Don't (laughs) worry. Don't worry. I'll pass this on to the parties that need it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. If he mailed any W2s with false information to his clients via the U.S. Postal Service, then he committed mail fraud. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. No, and those no doubt. And, and that's why cuz I think when I when I think about that cuz the W2 would say we remitted this much FICA on your behalf to the right. IRS and that's the material misrepresentation. So, and that was sent in the mail. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, this one, this one's another, another one that was a little tricky for me to nail down. Cody Easterday, the ghost cow rancher from episode 27, he, he pleaded guilty to wire fraud and, uh, and and it was, it was a pretty complicated case. It's a very interesting story. If you haven't listened to episode 27, I highly recommend it. But one of the things that got him in trouble was he was speculating on livestock futures on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange it's gonna it's gonna limit you on your losses that you can take on the exchange, but it gives exemptions based on people's financial statements. So he would submit falsified financial statements to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And so again, I'm assuming since it was wire fraud, not mail fraud, he mu- that, that likely he submitted those false documents electronically, which would then get him in trouble with wire fraud. Also, uh, there was also the, the, the part of this whole problem with uh, Cody Easterday was that he would receive advance payments from Tyson Foods. So he would be raising this cattle and once it was slaughtered, it would eventually be purchased by Tyson Foods. But it's such a... I thought such, Tyson did the slaughtering. I, and maybe Tyson did do the slaughtering because he just... He, he, was a, he was a feedlot. He was a... What do they call it? Mm-hmm. Finishing... A yeah, finishing, finishing operation. Operation, yep. yeah. Yep. And so so basically after the cattle was weaned or something like that, from weaning mm-hmm. till slaughter, he'd make sure that he, he'd fatten them up for yep, slaughter right. is yep. what he'd do. And, um, but Tyson would, would basically front him the money for the, for his inventory to make sure that he could get it to them. And then he, they'd pay him, you know, a little bit more or whatever, once they actually got the, the cows, but he was sending a Tyson fall, like fake invoices saying, Hey, I bought another hundred cattle and they'd go, cool, here's your advance. And he never really bought that cattle. And they were just giving him money for nothing. And one day they showed up at his, as from to say, Hey, where's all those cows? And he goes, yeah, I, about that. I, uh, I don't, I don't have those. And (laughs) that again, just so I love a story where (laughs) somebody just shows up one day looking for the thing. You know, like the crazy Eddie, the crazy Eddie stories like that too, where they're, they're looking up and like, Hey, can we see some of those TVs? Uh And like, sure. Right over here. Right. And like the boxes are fucking empty. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They're the best. And so, so again, with wire fraud, uh, my other assumption is that he probably delivered those invoices to Tyson food that would result in the, uh, advance, advance payment to him that he probably yep. emailed them. And so again, that's your, that's your wire fraud. So Caleb, now let's get into uh, a few cases that I think were harder ones. And by harder ones, I mean, these are the ones where I was having a tough time trying to figure out exactly how, uh, wire fraud or mail fraud 
came into the equation on these. And, and so we're going to look at these two cases at a time. So the first two cases, because because the cases were very, very similar. We're going to yep. look at, at Rita Crundwell. Uh, she's okay. the She was the, the quarter horse queen of Dixon, Illinois, who stole $53 million from the city. And, uh, and that was from episodes three and episode 20. And then yep. also we're going to look at Sister Mary Margaret. She was the nun who stole $835,000 from the Catholic elementary school of which she was the principal. Uh, so great case. Great, great. case. Bo- both of them are, are, yeah. are great. And, yeah. but, but what they did, they, they did very, very, they're very, very similar schemes. Because what Rita did is she had these legitimate accounts that were part of the Dixon, Illinois city municipal government uh, accounts. And then she opened uh, another account that was presumably a municipal city government account, but she was the only one who knew about it and she's the only one who had access to it. And what she would do is she would transfer money from the legit accounts to the secret account. And then from the secret account, she would end up using that money just for her own personal, you know, whatever she wanted, her horses, her RVs. Yeah. Those are her (laughs) travel, her, her fancy parties, all that sort of stuff. And then Sister Mary Margaret did basically the same thing where she had she had a account that was the like basically the checking account for the school and then there was another account that was uh the account for the oh shoot what do they call the the nuns live in a what convent it was a convent, convent. account it was an account for the convent and she so uh, the the elementary school had a lot of scrutiny over that. The uh, the convent account, she was basically the only one in charge of that, and there was much less scrutiny on that. So she'd transfer money from the elementary school account to the convent account, and then she'd use the convent account to basically pay off her gambling debts because That's right. this nun who swore an oath of poverty was had $800,000 of gambling debts, which is, uh, which is wonderful in its own right. But... Caleb, when you think about that, th- this is where my mind went trying to figure out how how wire fraud because they both in both of those cases they both pleaded guilty to wire fraud, mm-hmm. and the one thing I can think of is it's like okay so if if Rita was was making the transfers from the legitimate accounts to the secret account using online banking, well online banking is the internet, the internet is under the umbrella of wire fraud, boom, that's where the wire fraud happens. But where my where my brain gets stuck is this, is that the three components of wire fraud is you have to intend to defraud and you have to make a false representation and that false representation goes over, in this case, the internet. And I don't see what the false representation is just by transferring money from one account to another account. I can go online to, I I have multiple bank accounts with my bank and Mm -hmm. I can go on and I can transfer money from one to the other. And I'm not saying why I'm transferring the money. I'm just doing it. So there's no representation at all. There's just an order placed to transfer money. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's where that's where I get stumped and I go I'm not sure exactly how this was wire fraud unless there's this is and again this is my this is where we get really deep I mean the misrepresentation speech. the misrepresentation is that that they then absconded with the money right Yeah yes and that's what I'm that cuz I think you're going the same way my brain was where it's like is the implication 
of transferring money that it's implied that the transfer of money is for a legitimate purpose. Right. And so the the so it's an implied representation of this is a legitimate transfer and so that's where that's the misrepresentation. Right. Well cuz what it, it the the is it is it scienter? Yeah, scienter is the the intent, the the, the intent. criminal intent. Yeah. And the and there there is criminal intent there. Yes. Right? But yes. you're also but you're also saying there's got to be a false mis- misrepresentation. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm saying it's or a, a false stre- represent not a not a false misrepresentation. Yeah, that's right. a, that's a double negative. Right. It is yeah, um, a false representation. The false representation that the that the money that there was a legitimate purpose for for transferring the money. And, yeah, and like I said that's the best I can get to is that yeah. that maybe there's, you know, that's and again a, it, That's a decent hunch, Greg. It it is and and I don't think it's a bad one too because I don't know I don't know how much how much you remember like studying tax law back when we were yeah. in school. I sure. hated that because yeah. you'd have to find the one case where they made precedent uh, you know, they set precedent for things like this. So if one case, yep. the, uh, a, a prosecutor convinced a judge that by making a, a transfer of money between, you know, a, an online banking transfer that you, you're you implying that that's, you know, exactly what we said, that that was for a legitimate purpose and that that was the false representation, the judge buys it, then from then on, anybody who does that, you're, you're committing wire fraud based on case precedence. So yeah. it's, yeah. that's, that's the U.S. legal system. So that's, that's where I can get to with, with Rita and Mary Margaret. Now let's look at Nathan Muller and Sandy Jenkins. Two great cases. Love them great both. cases. Yep. Nathan Muller. He's the guy who stole eight and a half million dollars from ING uh, episodes four and episodes 28, where we actually talked to Nathan. Yep. We interviewed, we interviewed him. Um, he pleaded guilty to mail fraud because he mailed checks from ING to himself and to his credit card company. And I totally remember that. It was, yes, he 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 did it all by snail mail. Yep. Um, so pretty straightforward. Yep. Sandy Jenkins, he's the guy who embezzled over $16 million from the Collins Street Bakery in Corsicana, Texas. They make uh-huh. fruitcakes there, world-famous fruitcakes. <laughs> That Greg and I have never tried and have nope. never had sent to us by someone from the factory. Seems anyway, like that should happen. Should happen. Hasn't happened. Just waiting. Yep. Eventually. It'll anyway, come. episode episode 23, <laughs> uh, Sandy pleaded guilty to mail fraud. He sent checks in the mail from the bakery to his personal credit card company, just like Nathan Muller. But again, I think the material misrepresentation that's made just by sending a check in the mail. Again, I think the misrepresentation is that it was under false pretenses, right? Okay. Like they're sending money through the mail to pay a credit card bill, to right? Their I think own both, credit card bill. their own yeah. credit card bills yeah. uh, that they don't have the authority to do that. And so therefore you got a false representation. Yeah. That's it's, how I kind of see that. Yeah, and and I, I it seems like those are like we were saying they're they're like parallel uh, parallel arguments one for snail mail and one for electronic transfers where it's like just by what I, there's not it doesn't seem like there's an explicit false misrepresentation yeah. by a, a check from a from a company being sent to some other 
place that it's not intended to go. I, but again, it must be like you're saying, what would you say? Just a, cause like, uh, if you think about it, so what's a false representation? Yeah. False representation. Yeah. What is it? It's uh, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's true. If you think of those words, you're saying that, it's a lie, right? Yeah. It's you, just a it, lie. It's that this, and I, and again, I can easily see where you could build a case saying, if you're requesting a check and authorizing a check from a company that you work for to be sent to another entity, there's an implied representation that that's for a legitimate, a legitimate purpose expense. Yep. Yeah. A legitimate yep. purpose. And so, yeah, so it's a false, re- it's not a false statement. Maybe that's where I'm getting hung up is that when I think false representation, I'm thinking false statement. Oh um, yeah. No, and, I don't think so. I think it's an implied representation okay. by the action. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The action okay. of authorizing, authorizing a check, executing the check, you know, that that implies that you have the authority uh, to do those things yeah. and, and they're for a legitimate purpose. And in each case they were not. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. I think I'm, I think anyway. I'm convinced. I like it. But again, okay. again, just disclaimers upon discla- disclaimers. This is speculation. So this is we're we're those are our best guesses of how that works. But, uh, but if Caleb, you're listening and you're a U.S. attorney and would like to come on and talk about it with us, we would love to have you. Exactly. Send us a line at uh, oh my fraud at earmark.com. Um, but Caleb, just to round out all these things, I did think this this was fascinating. Um, yeah. And you might be surprised, but maybe not, especially at this point, that uh, that Ken Lay, the founder and chairman of Enron, yeah, was yeah. he was convicted of two counts of wire fraud, also okay. amongst a whole basket of other charges that yep. he was convicted of. But and th- I, I and now at this point, I think this is the more interesting fact: Jeff Skilling, who was the CEO of Enron when everything went down, he was not convicted of any wire fraud charges. Uh, Skilling was convicted of one count of conspiracy, 12 counts of securities fraud, and one count of insider trading and five counts of making false statements to auditors, but nothing on Jeff Skilling about wire fraud. Weird. Uh, it, what what I think is interesting about that is that's obviously one of the biggest cases in U.S. history. It's definitely yep. played a, you know, just a, it was so much a centerpiece of my entire accounting education yeah. when I was oh, yeah. in college that sure. that the, and, 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 and I, I got to imagine that it still plays a prominent role in people's educations today. And again, a, a fraud that clearly was securities fraud, but, yep. and, and, and not that they didn't get charged of securities fraud, but they were able to just say, Hey, also wire fraud is part of that. And they tacked that on. Also, another interesting just end note for this podcast is that Bernie Madoff was convicted of both mail fraud and wire fraud for his Ponzi scheme. So two, uh, I would say the two most notable fraud cases of our careers both involved mail and or wire fraud. All right, Greg. Did we learn anything? <laughs> Which I, I think is a funny question because 
Always. This 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 whole thing felt like a book report where I was. <laughs> we were telling what what did we learn? Yeah, all everything everything, everything. was things that we learned. But yeah. I do. I mean, I guess I guess just to wrap up my thoughts. Um, it, it, we started this by saying we were interested in what wire fraud was because we were seeing it come up in so many of the cases that we covered. And the reason so many fraudsters are charged with wire fraud is because it's really broadly written. It's very easy to prove. And as we said a couple times already, in today's technological environment, it's almost impossible to not communicate uh, some false representation electronically, which is going to get you in trouble with wire fraud. What about you, Caleb? What, what Was there anything particular that stuck out to you that was a real light bulb for this podcast? I don't know. I think um, I, th I should do some reading up on this soapy Sm soapy Smith guy. That sounds like a fun. <laughs> there fun, were some great stories that time. got unearthed from this from this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do I think? I think I, I I think what I learned, and I mentioned this earlier, is that the statutes are written in such a way, and the interpretations of those over the case, you know, over the course of time, and the case law, not to be throwing out like the fancy words <laughs> but like the case law i mean it really had it i think prosecutors have a lot of tools yeah um for pursuing white collar crimes because of these statutes and um it, it it's i don't know man i don't like it's it's just so easy to prove because yeah. it's all right there you know yeah. you you can have the communications especially like these days like all the emails there, they right. just have to, they just have to subpoena Google and they probably don't have to subpoena Google. They probably just say, Hey Google, we right. think a crime was committed. Can you give us the shit? And they'll just hand it right over, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, maybe they don't, I don't know. Yeah. But like between that and then the, the paper trail of how the money moves, it's just, it's just all there, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And when they, when they, when they, it, it, and it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to think about. It's like how they piece this stuff all together when they prosecute somebody. Like that's a lot of work, right? Like, but you, but the, the, the wire fraud and the mail fraud statutes are such that it makes their job pretty easy. Yeah. Because it's so broad and the courts have been, have, have given them leeway to pursue those crimes because and like i guess i would say again what i said earlier is that i think i you know now knowing what i know i want my wire fraud laws to be aggressive yeah <laughs> like, yeah yeah i don't want anybody fucking around totally you know because and i mean the here here's here's the other thing i'll bring up that is is kind of off topic but what i i i don't understand is like the sentencing so like okay. a lot of the cases that we listen to these people some people steal a lot of money some people steal a relatively small amount of money they all get charged with wire fraud and they get these they get very long prison sentences in some cases right in and some then cases. you have and then you have violent criminals oh who right. end up in prison yeah. for you know less time yeah and though that's the kind of thing that i'm always puzzled by is it's just like well are we just pulling these sentences out of our asses right. like i don't know but it's the it's the it, it, that seems like something that we cir we've circled back around to a lot uh, when we really get deep and reflective on the podcast is like what is justice 
just yeah. just in in general and how you know if somebody steals stealing money and being locked in a cell those those are two very different things so it's you know it's it's hard to really have a concrete feel on what what is justice and when is it served right um i i did think i liked what you said about the prosecutors having a lot of tools in their tool belt to go after white collar crime. And I would say that the wire fraud statute is, is basically the Phillips head screwdriver of that tool belt, because it's like, you can use that on every, anytime anytime you need tools, you need a Phillips head screwdriver. Oh my God. It's like, we've got a ratcheting, we've got a Milwaukee ratcheting screwdriver in our, uh, in our garage. Uh And it is, it is one of the, is most one of the useful tools I've ever had. I mean, like I use, we use it so much and it's like, that is, that is kind of the wire fraud statute. And, and the one reason why, and this, I don't know, this might just be me being jaded, but the one reason why I think Jeff Skilling didn't have wire fraud as one of his charges is I think they kind of looked around each other and said, we got enough on this guy, right? Yeah. We we got it. Do we need to do wire fraud too? And they're like, no, 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 we got plenty. We got plenty. Forget, forget wire fraud. We're good to go so well all right that's it for this episode remember even in the 21st century carrier pigeons are still considered the all-around best way to avoid wire fraud charges (laughs) and also remember if pt barnum hands you a telegram you tell him to cram it up his ass if you want to drop us uh, a line because you are a prosecuting attorney and want to tell us everything that we got wrong in this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, where can people find you out there uh, in the internet? I'm on the website formerly known as Twitter, at CNewquist, and also LinkedIn, backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, where can you be found? I'd, Orem, I'd say Ut- Orem, Utah, right? Orem, Utah. Yeah, just yeah. come to Orem and shout my name loud. I will hear it and I will come find you. Also, uh, at this point, I'm I'm so tired of Twitter. I barely get on there. LinkedIn, I'm only a little bit better nowadays. But LinkedIn is a good place to drop me a message if you need to. I'm there, uh, backslash Greg Kite. You can also just send me an email, greg at gregkite.com. Pretty easy. Oh, My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, rate it. Rate it. Rate the show, write a review, share it with a friend, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're an accountant and you need CPE, this episode, I don't know when this episode will drop. This episode will drop soon-ish. And even if it doesn't, accountants, you need CPE. So get some CPE by listening on Earmark. Did I finally say it? Earmark. Earmark. CPE. Get some CPE an earmark it's I should so stop easy. talking it's so easy <laughs> yeah it is easy yeah as easy as wire fraud uh i'd say even easier than easier wire than fraud. wire fraud it's easier than wire fraud all right join us next time for more average swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say oh my fraud oh, my fraud, fraud.